from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I don't know that I could even call that a ban, the way that that's framed. Do you think the governor is going to sign this bill? So, you know, Illinois obviously has a reputation, uh, I'm sure, especially to Missourians. The day after Election Day, the governor comes out and he's, you know, very clearly upset uh, and says gravely, you know, we will, there will be cuts and they will be painful. That's an exact quote. I'm Sarah Fenske. This has been an unusual session for Illinois lawmakers and a busy one. Among other things, for the first time since 1997, Speaker Mike Madigan was not presiding over the Illinois House. And joining us now with the highlights is Hannah Meisel. She is the Illinois government and politics reporter for NPR Illinois. Hannah, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So, Hannah, Mike Madigan, he was the longest-serving state legislative leader in U.S. history. How did it change things to have him gone for this session? That's right. Uh, Well, you know, he had a very uh, particular way of doing things. He's a very uh, fastidious kind of person, very quiet, reclusive. And, you know, his nickname that he earned over the years was the Velvet Hammer, meaning, you know, he didn't make a fuss necessarily, but he made deals behind the scenes. Hmm. Um, And he, you know, if he didn't want something done, it wouldn't happen. And if he did, it would. Um, You know, his replacement, uh, Speaker... Well, she is the first uh, black speaker of the Illinois House, and he is just a different sort of personality, much more outgoing. Uh, you know, he wants to be open. He wants to be, you know, he transparent. Of course, transparent has different meanings to different people, but it's just it's different. Uh, I think one of the 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 wrinkles that we uh, ran into, I would say, around uh, late April, early May, is that he didn't necessarily want to say no to any of his members, unlike Speaker Madigan before him. Um, And that meant a lot of legislation was passing out of the, uh, you know, out of House committees. And there was just a lot going on. And it was uh, kind at times unmanageable. And the governor's office, you know, Governor J.B. Pritzker has only been in office for about, what, two and a half years now. And, you know, he had to step into this role that I'm not sure he was quite ready for to have to say no. And so, uh, you know, several weeks ago, my colleague Rich Miller, uh, he reported on how the governor's office threatened mass vetoes if folks didn't change their bills because, uh, frankly, they were unworkable. So that was definitely one difference there. That's interesting. So mass vetoes, basically saying um, these bills are against what I want to do here, or these bills are outright unconstitutional? It was more of the latter, um, you know, and just the volume of things that were coming up. I mean, committees were not, uh, in the House at least, were not being held in person. They were all remote. And at times there were committees, uh, you know, people on the same committee or on different committees having their two different committees at the same time. And it was just 
you know, a lot of people complaining about the amount of work, the amount, the volume of things that they were having to keep track of. And it was um, untenable for a while there. Hmm, Untenable. That's a strong word from somebody who's been covering (laughs) things for eight years. Do you feel like as uh, the new House Speaker, Chris Welch, settles into his role that uh, he might get the hang of the pacing and and these sort of issues will be worked out? Or is this just a a fundamental difference in personality here? You know, I think it's both, but I do think that his first year, I mean, we've all been in new jobs where we want to please everyone and we want to be, you know, everyone, everything to everyone. And I think it's a little bit of that. And I think it's it's also just he's got a more progressive politics than Mike Madigan. He likes to th- see things moving, whereas Mike Madigan had a more... Oh, you know, he had a responsibility to uh, his loyal folks who he would then, you know, uh, whether outright or not, uh, connect people to lobbying gigs. And a lot of, you know, one Mm -hmm. of his signature moves was to place automatic sunset dates on big pieces of legislation. So that meant that groups, businesses would have to come back to the Illinois legislature and say, oh, can we extend this thing, which meant, you know, legislative action, which also meant work for his uh, loyalists. So Madigan really liked being a gatekeeper. Welch is is opening the gates. Sounds like that turned into floodgates. They did get some things through (laughs) um, and not necessarily things that will be vetoed like some of these things. One of those Mm -hmm. things was a budget. This was a $42 billion budget. How did this compare to past years? Well, so this is a uh, what we would call like a flat spending budget, um, you know, budget not super increased from the spending levels of last year. But within that $42 billion, things have been switched around. And, you know, it's quite remarkable. Uh, seven months ago, after Governor J.B. Pritzker, his signature campaign promise, the, this uh, graduated income tax constitutional amendment, voters rejected it. Uh, pretty roundly on election day. And the day after election day, the governor comes out and he's, you know, very clearly upset uh, and says gravely, you know, we will, there will be cuts and they will be painful. That's an exact quote. And seven months later, our economy has bounced back from COVID, the COVID recession, much quicker and stronger than anyone could have expected. And in addition to that, we have you know, more than $8 billion of federal American Rescue Plan funds coming our way. And so it is not the budget containing painful cuts that the governor had promised. And, you know, for large part, it doesn't contain a ton of that pain for, you know, especially things like social services that the government either provides directly or contracts out. But um, very interesting. The other thing is that the governor had been promising since February a billion dollars worth of cuts in what he called corporate income tax loopholes. Uh, of course, businesses would call them tax incentives for economic development. And uh, he only ended up with about 600 plus billion of those cuts. And so uh, a little bit of a compromise there for him. Of course, it, not all of those cuts were popular with Democratic uh, legislators either. Um, just very interesting you know, the other if the governor promises, oh, there's going to be cuts, there's going to be pain, is kind of um, a pattern of the governor kind of overstating things hmm. and then uh, not things not bearing out. And it's very interesting the dynamics there between you know the governor's office and who in the legislature 
ends up still trusting the governor because there's still a lot of uh, tension uh, about, you know, COVID restrictions over the last year. And is this the case then of of the boy crying wolf? People are starting to Mm. say, hey, governor, when you're asking for austerity, why should we give this to you? Um, The situation could turn around just like it did last year. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what I was going for. Like, yeah, it's it's difficult for, uh, you know, Tim, for him to be believed. Of course, yeah, none of us could have predicted that the economy was this good. Uh, You know, that's not to uh, say that the economy is good for everyone, of course. But, you know, in the vaccine rollout, even though obviously uh, vaccine uptake has dropped significantly in the last couple months, it's still, you know, no one could have predicted of people, a ton of people having vaccines this time last year. So for sure, and that really mm-hmm. did open things, get things back going. And as you also mentioned, just a huge amount of federal stimulus money. Yes. So that budget sounds like good news for a lot of people who might have had cause to worry. Something else that got passed here um, by the Illinois legislature. This is a, an ethics package. Did this have what the governor wanted when he was calling for this this ethics package? Not exactly. So, you know, Illinois obviously has a reputation, uh, I'm sure, especially to Missourians who, um, you know, want to attract people to their state instead of ours. But, um, you know, Illinois has a a history of politicians who are, yes, self-dealing and, uh, you know, willing to profit off of, you know, government. And, you know, one of the things that the governor has repeatedly asked for in the last, you know, more than two years is a revolving door ban, which means that uh, lawmakers can't direct, like, you know, resign from the legislature and then the day after go lobby their colleagues. A lot of states do have these revolving door bans. The governor uh, has repeatedly said he wanted this, but in the ethics bill that got passed, uh, it's kind of a pretty wide loophole. So doesn't even take effect until 2023, mm-hmm. and it's only a six-month ban. And even then, uh, it only applies to the two-year General Assembly to which you're elected. So if I'm a you know, state rep and I get elected um, you know, in, after, or I would say like November 2022, uh, I could serve you know, a year and a half, and then, or no, I, sorry, I could serve my two years, step down, Uh, like the day before I'm supposed to be sworn in again. And then I could just go and lobby a fresh General Assembly the next day. Uh, Loophole, totally, you know, legal. That is quite a loophole. I'm very familiar with these revolving door bans in other states. I don't know Mm -hmm. that I could even call that a ban the way that that's framed. Do you think the governor is going to sign this bill? Well, I mean, he indicated to me and other reporters last week, he kind of like threw up his hands. Uh, you know, he told me, yes, I wanted more. And I, one of the things I wish I had the presence of mind to ask him while I had, you know, a quick interview opportunity like a lot of other reporters last week is, will you use your power of a mand- mandatory, v- sorry, a mandatory veto, which is something that not a lot of governors have. But I, you know, it was so sleep deprived after covering session, I completely forgot about that. And so now one of the top like government reform groups is calling for the governor to use that. I'm not sure that he will, though. He told another news outlet that, you know, why would I introduce my own ethics package when I have allies in the General Assembly? Interesting. So he feels like this is not going to help him in the long term if, if he cracks down on some of this stuff? I mean, you know, he's got he hasn't formally announced yet, but he does have all signs point to, yes, he's going to run again for a second term. Um, you know, it's 
probably not prudent politically for him to make enemies at this point when, you know, he feels as if this is the will of Democrats in the General Assembly. Oh, Illinois is always so interesting. (laughs) So one of the things that did not get passed out of this session, this is um, a big energy bill. Tell us where what's the sticking point on this one? Okay, so um, Illinois has passed a series of these giant kind of energy bills in the last, I would say, 20 years, um, trying to put Illinois on a path to more renewable energy. Um, And as technology evolves, obviously, it it does get better every year, every few years. Um, But so it it would put Illinois. So right now we're not meeting our goals that were set out, I think, in 2007 and then again a few years ago. But also, you know, want to induce more investment in the renewable energy industry in Illinois, a growing industry. but the sticking point was so this uh, i don't know how much nuclear power missouri relies on but illinois is the most nuclearized state in the nation we have six nuclear power plants uh, that power a, you know most a lot of upstate illinois it, they provide 50% of all the total energy output for illinois um huge deal but they are not profitable this a big a nuclear giant called Exelon, which also operates in other states, uh, these plants are just not profitable. So back in 2016, they went to the General Assembly, went to the governor at that time, Bruce Rauner, and said, hey, we need help. We need subsidies. And um, so the state gave them a 10-year you know, kind of subsidy package. And lo and behold, uh, just a few years later, even after Exelon's subsidiary, ComEd, got caught up in this uh, big corruption uh, probe by the U.S. attorney that did involve, uh, you know, as we were talking about earlier, uh, former House Speaker Mike Madigan. Exelon still, it, some people would consider brazenly, asked, like, hey, we need more subsidies or else we're going to threaten or we're going to shut down two power plants. And then so all spring in the negotiations, it was the two power plants. And then as we got closer to that May 31st deadline, they said, you know what? We might just shudder a third, and we're going to ask for even more. And so that was the sticking point for a while until literally the very last night of session when that had actually been resolved almost miraculously. And then these coal-fired power plants that um, are either owned by municipalities or there's this big one in the Metro East, uh, you know, near St. Louis and owned by a St. Louis uh, company that whose name escapes me right now. Is I that apologize, but Peabody, yes, exactly. Peabody Energy uh, is, you know, was behind this big Prairie State Energy Campus down in Marissa, and uh, cities and towns in Illinois and beyond. Uh, years ago, they bought into the financing of this um, energy campus, this coal-fired power plant. It is the state's largest uh, polluter and one of the largest polluters in the entire United States. Uh, so it's this sticking point that the environmentalists and the governor, they've said that they want all coal-fired power plants to be shut down by 2035. That would mean that, you know, the contracts would end 15 years early. And so then it would also put the cities and towns that financed the project on the hook for the bonding. And it's just really complicated. And, you know, it's also emotional because in a lot of, you know, not just the... Uh, Prairie State campus, but 
a lot of these coal-fired power plants that especially power places in downstate Illinois, they're a major economic generator. And so for the state to say, well, you have to shut down by 2035, you know, that is forced closure. And yes, they want to help those folks transition to, uh, you know, clean energy jobs. But the argument there is, well, you know, it's just a job to construct, you know, a wind farm or a solar farm. Right. But after that, there's not like a, you don't make your career out of going there every day and operating it. It's not the same thing. They're not as worker intensive. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like there's a big issue here where um, the, these coal-fired plants, or at least one big coal-fired plant, wants a subsidy at the point when everybody was prepared to move forward with the nuclear subsidy. There's still some some details to be worked out on that, I imagine. Is that what the legislature is going to have to deal with when it comes back? Yes. That, uh, you know, that is the number one thing. We can't come away without some sort of energy deal because if those, if Exelon does uh, go through with shuttering their plants, um, you know, there is no way, everyone loses. The, the environmentalists, they acknowledge, even though they don't like that reality, that uh, there is no path to 100% renewable energy by 2050 if we don't use nuclear as a bridge. And, you know, just reliability is a huge, huge factor, especially for businesses, especially for manufacturing. And so, so the, the nuclear companies really have mm-hmm. the state over a barrel on this. The, the state I mean, is going to yeah. have to, to deal with them. Right. So we are going to come, the lawmakers are going to come back. I know that lawmakers are being pulled about their availability. So sometime, I'm hearing in the next two weeks, uh, they'll be back in Springfield to deal with this and a couple of other issues that they left on the table. Well, Hannah Meisel, there is so much going on. As you said, a very big, busy session. But uh, we appreciate you joining us today to share some of the highlights. Thanks for having me, Sarah. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.